Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my dear friend and business partner, Tibi Erdely. In this episode, Tibi discusses his entrepreneurial drive and the importance of persistence in driving success. From there, we discuss Tibi's namesakes, his grandfather and father, and the impact they've had on his life. Next, Tibi discusses his relationship with religion and the powerful impact of prayer and gratitude. From there, we discuss the concept of the multiverse, transportation of consciousness to different parallel universes, and the interplay of time, gravity, and light. Then we dive into the concept of the Goldilocks zone and its relation to the Drake equation, a calculation developed by astrophysicists to estimate the number of technologically advanced civilizations in the Milky Way. We end the discussion talking about what, if anything, comes next for us after the end of our lives on planet Earth. Please enjoy. Tonight, I'm honored to be joined by my dear friend and business partner, Tiberio Ignacio Early III. Tibby, how are you tonight? <laughs> hey, I appreciate the ultra-formal introduction there. For those listening, I, I go by Tibby, but Tiberio works well too. Doing great, man. Been a super busy week, but I, I guess as you know, ever since we took on this endeavor with Key, it's been a uh, super busy life. Yeah, no, no rest for the weary. And maybe to kick things off, it'd be great if you could tell the listeners about yourself, how we got together, what key is, and go from there. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I guess given the topic of the podcast series, I think the universe works in mysterious ways. And, you know, things have to happen in a certain way to bring people together. And, and I'm glad that the universe brought you and I together, Jordan. A little bit about myself. I was... I'm 32 years old. I'm on the cusp of 33. Uh, one of the last of the great generation of the 80s babies. I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. I went to school down there, studied finance, found my way working at Goldman right out of school. That took me out to Salt Lake City. From there, I transferred over to their New York office where I continued kind of my studies and whatnot. And Pursuing my passions, which ultimately led me into the private equity industry, out to Denver, Colorado, working for Partners Group, which is around the time that the universe brought us all together. So I found myself in Denver when I was 26 or 27 years old, kind of working in with a few different hats of partners, but mainly in an IR role. And Jordan, as you know, uh, we all kind of came out here around the same time and became friends. Also met Pete, our uh, other co-founder here at Key, and and I'd say we definitely first developed a, a friendship before we developed a partnership. And you know, through getting to know you guys and where your passions lied, and the type of you know gentleman that you are, and and the ethics and whatnot that we all had, and and then again, I think our, our desires to do more and see more of an entrepreneurial goal in our future, we uh, ultimately kind of cross paths in the right way. Key was formed after you uh, so elegantly brought the idea to Pete and I over some beers at Union Station, and and you know the rest is history. Now we're here. 
Gosh, crazy to think how far we've come and what seems like such a short time. It's been a wild ride, man. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I've got a few more gray hairs. <laughs> Certainly no harm on any folks that are still working for the man, but getting out there and taking that leap of faith in yourself and and those who you surround yourself with and doing something on your own, you just grow so much and so quickly and couldn't have done what we're doing today without the experience that we had previously. But I feel like I'm just light years ahead of where I would have been had I not experienced the trials and tribulations of of going out and, and figuring it out on your own. And frankly, you know, again, I don't think it would have been possible to pull off what we've what we've done with just one guy or, or, or two guys. It, it really took the team to support each other to to get there. Did you always have that drive to be an entrepreneur? It's a funny question, dude. And I may have told you some of these stories in the past, but the short answer is yes, definitely. And I may not have recognized it as that as much as I always was just kind of a a little hustler growing up. I'll give you an example uh, of something that I did at a very young age. And then I'll give you an example of something I did at more formative years in high school. And then, you know, I'll, I'll let you deduce whether or not that was entrepreneurial drive. But when I was about four years old, so a little bit of background, my dad is an entrepreneur. He's been a small business owner in, in different ways my entire life. And always the kind of guy to like teach you the value of a dollar and, you know, needing to work hard. And, you know, I'll say, you know, I was raised in a, a nice household, never really had to worry too much about anything. My dad was, you know, successful and, you know, remained successful. But anyway, so when I was about four years old, I went to the mall with my dad and I really wanted one of those bucket hats, like what Gilligan wears from Gilligan's Island. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? kind of like a fisherman's hat yeah yeah i know yeah and anyway so i uh i don't know why i wanted one and we were walking by a store and i saw a hat and it was you know, 15 or 20 bucks or something like that and my dad you know hands me the money he's like well you go in there and you buy it yourself and it was i think the first time i'd ever done anything like that and i walk out of the store with like 20 hats and my dad's like what are you doing and i'm like well the guy told me that the hat was a penny. So I bought all the hats he had. And so I walk out of the store with, you know, like, you know, $17 and 20 hats. And (laughs) the next thing I did was I kept one for myself and took them to one of my dad's stores. He owned an Ace Hardware at this time. And I was standing at the front of the hardware store, set up a little table and I sold 19 hats at about 15 bucks a piece. And I think the point of that story is nobody really told me that I needed to, that I should not just buy one hat for a penny and walk out. I was like, holy smokes, this is a deal and I can make some money here. And I kind of recognized that at a young age and was able to do that. So that was the first time I'd made some good money. Frankly, it's probably the best return um, investment I've ever made. (laughs) You can do the math. They're multiplying 19 times 15, et cetera. But uh, Anyway, so that was a that was my first deal. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice IRR uh, on that one. <laughs> it was good IRR on that one. Not to mention it was super easy sell. You got this 
cute little kid. Well, I guess yeah. I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you know, I assume I was a cute little kid. Out there <laughs> I've trying, seen pictures. Trying, I can confirm. <laughs> trying to make a buck. So that that was something that I didn't even realize what I had done, and my dad walked me through that and kind of taught me the the lesson of that it was like really smart that I walked out of there like recognizing at that age that that was an opportunity and jumped on it. So fast forward to another story here. When I was in high school, I saw a similar opportunity. I played high school football, and you know every year they as a means of fundraising, they would offer like different contests and whatnot. And one year we had to sell like these discount coupon booklets, which cost 20 bucks a piece. And my coach was like, for every seven or something like that, that you sell, you get a free booklet. So, and you know, I had like a month to do this. So I spent basically every day after practice or all my time on the weekends going out and selling as many of these books as I could door to door. And I mean, I sold like hundreds of these things. And I walked out with, you know, like 20 or something of these free booklets, which I then went and sold for 20 bucks a piece and made some money. And then in addition to that, I won the contest just from hustling. I got all these prizes. I got to like jump into this cash booth in front of my entire school. But anyways, the point of that one is also recognizing that nothing can take the place of hard work and, and persistence mm-hmm. and I probably wasn't very good at selling the first few booklets, but after I knocked on 200 doors, I was getting pretty damn good at it and telling a story to go out there and fundraise. And, you know, it was great. I raised a ton of money for my school. I got recognized for it. Uh, admittedly, I was doing it for selfish purposes. I just knew that every time I sold seven, it was 20, bu- 20 more bucks in my pocket because I'd go sell the next one. And yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of stories like that growing up, but, um, I think those are two that that really stand out. And you know, with that, I'll, I'll turn the question to you. Like, did I always know I was going to be an entrepreneur? Had the drive? I don't know, but I always recognized good deals and was always you know willing to work for them and, and make things happen. And I've definitely seen that from you time and time again firsthand. And you talk about this idea of persistence, and I think of all your strengths, that's got to be top three, if not the number one. And so, would love to just. Hear more about how you developed that persistence, you know, how you were able to recognize it as such an important characteristic of success. Yeah, I think I think even going back to the the story of selling those coupon booklets in high school, I recognized that you're not very good at something the first time you do it. And you can look at that as failure or you can stop, right? You know, people close the door, they they tell you no. And you know, you can choose to stop or you can choose to keep going. But if you choose to keep going, you undoubtedly start to get better at whatever it is that you're doing. And if you believe in what you're doing and there's value to what you're trying to get across to someone, and right now I'm tying this specifically to sales, but do be sure that this, that I I believe in persistence basically in all aspects of life. But the point is that if you keep trying and you don't let failure stop you, you're going to get better at it. And ultimately, if you keep getting just a little and a little better at it, you're getting that much closer and closer to success. And it's when people only call it failure if you stop and they don't see the fruits of your labor come true. And then at the same token, people will see you be very successful at it and be like, oh, it must have been easy. He got this on his first try. I mean, like thinking about like selling these booklets, like 
I've knocked on hundreds of doors that people said no. In my opinion, those were all failures, but it looked like a mega success to everybody else when I sold 200 or whatever it was like that, because they were like, oh, shit, he went out there and it must have been easy for this guy. But it, it wasn't easy. I had to fail hundreds of times to figure out those other wins. And that truly kind of resonates throughout how I carry myself and the rest of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. There's things that you don't want to be silly. You got to really fact check yourself and and gut check yourself and talk to other folks to make sure that you're not being persistent on a silly endeavor. But if you keep getting positive feedback, even though you aren't getting the result that you want, and you've got not only that internal spirit saying, you know, press on, keep doing this, it's going to work. And you've got folks around you that say that you know, love and trust that are telling you the same, then press on. I mean, but if you start to have internal doubts and people around you are like, Hey, this, this might not be the best idea. You know, you got to read the room as well and do things that you can and and control what you can within where your strengths lie and, and try to do better. Yeah. And as you're talking about that, it makes me think of that poster, right? With the iceberg that says success and then under the water, it's like doubt, failure, rejection, all that. Exactly. I mean, Jordan, I think about raising our first fund here, right? Like everyone's looking at us and right now, and you know, our friends and family members and, and our investors are like, wow, these guys are successful, but it wasn't easy finding those investors. And we, people were like, oh, you succeeded at your first endeavor. And I don't necessarily view it that way. I mean, yeah, now like I view raising key fund one ultimately as a success, but in reality, we had to fail I think thousands of times in the process of figuring out how to raise key fund one. I mean, we did, we weren't successful the first time we tried to go out there and raise key fund one. We had to lose hundreds of times to win a handful of times. And ultimately it's those wins that kind of everybody sees and saw or, or remembered. And that's what you're known for. But this wasn't like a, Oh, you started your first people were always like, Oh yeah. It usually takes a few people start a few companies before they hit it. I mean, I think, frankly, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. We had to revamp our process, rethink how we were doing things at Key, continue to get better and better through persistence, through checking ourselves, through talking to each other, through talking to other folks yeah. to come up with a better strategy that actually worked to raise Key Fund One, right? And you also talked about you know the struggles that we go through. And thankfully, we were so naive when we went into starting the business that we didn't recognize how long and hard it was going to be. But for me, one of the biggest benefits of having you and Pete as co-founders is that obviously we all went through those tough times when fundraising seemed like it was never end. And then you had you know, the vape crisis and you had the cannabis public oh market crash, yeah. COVID. But like the nice thing was that I feel like even when I was at a low point, you guys weren't right. And so the, the timing was like, we were always able to be there for each other when we were going through those doubts or, you know, we're scared about. Oh, totally, man. I, again, I, I don't think that in particular, what we did w- would have been possible, especially at our age with the lack of not just knowledge in how to fundraise, but even just the lack of Rolodex that you get from being, you know, just a little bit more seasoned in your profession. Like without you guys, I just don't, I don't think it could have been just two of us. It it had to be the three. I think four would have been too many because we wouldn't have been able to like make decisions. It's always nice to have that tiebreaker. And obviously I can, 
you and I can speak probably pretty well to our specific scenario. And I think that there's a lot of universal lessons learned from what we went through. But, but at the end of the day, every situation is different. But at least from, from our situation, I can certainly say like, it's nice to have co-founders when, when you're tackling such a difficult endeavor. And so to kick things off, I mentioned that you were Tiberio the third. Would love to learn a little bit more about Tiberio the first and the second and the impact they've had on your life. Yeah, man. It's look, I've I've uh, I've got a close family. Crazy timing with the podcast. My um actually a week and a day ago, we put Tiberio the first to rest. My my grandfather recently passed away. And then today actually happens to be Tiberio Jr.'s the second birthday, 62nd birthday. So Oh, I didn't realize that. Tell him I said happy birthday. Yeah, the, he's 2-2-22. Two, two, it's kind of a weird one. But yeah, I'll, I'll let him know that, uh, that you say that. But yeah, so, so my grandfather very much is, I kind of still talk like he's still here, but you know, he's, he's really been the patriarch of my family, leading the charge and, and whatnot. And he, um, you know, he's a successful man, a, you know, engineer by trade, lots of great investments. And he's always been that old school, old boy, gentleman mentality of investing and, and how he treats his family and whatnot. And I think some of the things that I really took from my grandfather were always being a gentleman and, and acting gentlemanly within your business. And what I mean by that specifically is being honest, being transparent, don't screw people over. Like it all comes back to you. There's better business and doing good business don't be a pushover, you know, don't let people F you over and stuff like that. But, but at the end of the day, make sure you know who you're doing business with, who your dealings are with. And, you know, those were lessons that initially were taught to me with regards to friendships and how to treat family. And um, that ultimately really led into business and pretty large family. So cousins and aunts and uncles and all that. But my grandpa, again, to the old school mentality, I, I would say, and argue that I'm certainly the one to carry his name and his legacy being, being the third. And I think that I always held a special place in his heart because of that. And, and he, he certainly took me under his wing early on, always trying to like point things out to me, like difficulties that he went through and, and how he overcame them and people that he met throughout his life and, and the impact that they had on his life, whether negative or positive and lessons that he learned from stuff like that. But I think first and foremost, just always really, really focused on the never ending story of be a good person, do good to others. He was a, you know, somewhat of a religious man too, always told me the importance of faith and making sure to be humble and, and thankful and whatnot. And then by no surprise, a lot of those characteristics that my grandpa would, you know, always try to instill on me were certainly major personality traits of my own dad. So a, a lot of that stuff that my grandpa would try to pass down to me was being passed down to me on a daily basis from, from my father. Although I would say at, at an early age, when my dad was really kind of in his prime of working, I mean, he was just working so much and working so hard, especially as a small business owner, you know, like open to close all the time, just out there, working on new ideas, new projects that like a lot of what I saw from my dad getting to know my grandpa from like that high level and him already being a successful man, basically by the time I was born and then my watching my dad work towards his success, I think coupled a lot of the sentiments that I have about 
being persistent because I saw my dad working his butt off and then bringing that all together with the lessons that my grandpa would teach me about being a gentleman in business and doing the right thing and all that. And, and then watching that happen in real time with my father and then also being able to kind of lean on my father's opinions and whatnot as I grew up. And, you know, anytime I, I messed up or, or got in trouble or, or did the wrong thing per se, my dad always made it a point to sit me down and, and sometimes nicely and sometimes not so nicely point out the flaws and make sure that I sat there and, and listened to him as he would beat the drum and teach me a lesson and tell me like why something I did was wrong or how I could improve my situation. And I think that those are characteristics that I've frankly also taken upon myself and my own personality. I find myself sometimes, whether or not people want to hear it or, or whether or not I even have the right to, and that's probably something I need to work on. I find myself trying to give my friends friendly, fatherly type advice. And you know, at the end of the day, it's it's always kind of in a, it may not always be well-received, but it's, it's, it's always well-intentioned, but something that I, I, I need to work on and, and good to recognize just generally that everyone has flaws and needs to continue to work on themselves is that, you know, my delivery potentially needs to be changed. And I think that my, my dad, that's probably something that I picked up from him. Sometimes, you know, his delivery isn't always this, you know, the best mm-hmm. and we can butt heads sometimes at, at the way he messages things to me. And, you know, I can see that hopefully that's a, answers your question well of my relationship yeah. with those guys no it does that's great and uh i know i've been lucky enough to have gotten to meet your father and your mother and, and your sister actually multiple times so i just love the family did not get to meet your grandfather unfortunately but it's beautiful to hear the impact that he's he's had on you and he's blessed to have you carrying on his legacy yeah absolutely thanks man you also mentioned that your grandfather was a religious man and that he really was instrumental in your early development of faith. So I'd love to hear what has been your relationship with religion over your lifetime. Yeah. My, you know, my, my grandpa, if I really had to say who's been the most religious influence in, in my life aside from him, and it's probably not, um, not crazy thing about this, but it was actually my grandma, his, his former wife. And she really taught, religion instilled it upon me. And so I was raised Catholic. I wouldn't say that I'm probably the best Catholic in the world, not because I'm breaking the 10 commandments or anything like that, but more, I don't follow a lot of just the Catholic doctrine. Like I, I don't go to church that often or whatnot, but I would actually argue that I'm, I'm a pretty religious guy and a pretty spiritual guy. And part of the reason for that is simply because I've been able to recognize, and I think I recognize this at a young age, that we just are so lucky to be here. I feel like just the randomness of the universe is such a beautiful thing. I think that it's important to potentially call it what you want to call it. I call it a higher power. I don't know what it is, but I think that there's something to be thankful for out there and and for the situation that you're in. And and I frankly think that the energy you put out is reflective of the energy that you receive back in the universe. And I I think something that's near and dear to my relationship with God or, or, you know, with a higher power is that I get down on my knees daily, usually several times a day and, and just give thanks because I recognize that you know, there's so many other people 
so many different types of situations. And I just feel so fortunate and so blessed to be where I am at, at this point in time. I, I think it's just super, super important to stay humble and, and not grow a big head or, or grow a big ego and just understand that nothing is forever, that we are here for a finite amount of time and call it luck, call it what you want, but you know, circumstances change on a dime and, and it's important to recognize your circumstance at any given point in time and, and to just be so, so thankful for that. And whether you're going through good times or, or going through bad times, I think it's important to have, call it that internal dialogue with yourself so that you can recognize where your psyche lies at, at any point in time and recognize when you need to work on yourself. Maybe you need some me time. Maybe you need some friend time. Maybe you need some mom time, you know, or time with your dog or whatever it is. It's, you know, it's, it all steps back to being able to internally reflect, have that kind of relationship with yourself. That relationship with myself is also, you know, my internal relationship with God. And, and, you know, that's, it's something that prayer has always been a a big part of my life. And, you know, I, I think people, pray in different ways. Some people meditate, some people pray, some people talk to their dog, whatever. Yeah. It really is incredible how powerful that prayer and thoughts of gratitude can be. And, you know, to your point, like it's when you're going through good times, it's naturally easier to feel thankful. And when you're going through tough times, it can be hard to remember all the good things that you do still have, but it does just as I've continued to really try to think about gratitude and the importance of it. And as I've, incorporated meditation into my life much more in the recent years than early on. Like it just, it it really is just powerful how that can just magnify your appreciation for everything. It really does. And I, I said, I feel like the energy you put out will affect the energy you receive back. But I think, I think even more than that, like your brain and the brain is the most complex thing that we scientifically know of in the entire universe right and it's a very powerful machine so whether whether there's this multiverse or whether everything's connected does god exist does god not exist like these are questions that i don't know that i can answer or that potentially will be answered or fully understood in my lifetime but i do know that the brain is an extremely powerful tool and and machine. And even if it's just your own internal thought process and internal psyche that can influence your feelings and and your mood and your, your demeanor, it's important to meditate. It's important to reflect on your situation and think about how you can always make your situation better and, or think about why things are the way they are in your current situation. And I think that you know, regardless of those questions that we can't answer, like higher power, everything's connected or not. I think that you can certainly at least answer today that internal reflection and the internal desire to put yourself into a better state than what you're currently in is very possible to do through, again, the most powerful thing that we know of that exists in the universe is the human brain. Yeah. From a computing standpoint, let's not, let's not talk about the energy of black holes or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there might be time for that still. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. <laughs> it is crazy about, as you talk about the computing power of the brain, don't they say that we only use something like 10% of it? 
Yeah, I've I've heard that before. I think that that's a misconstrued perception. I, if you look at, and this is, you know, I'm not, I'm no brain surgeon or neuroscientist or anything like that. So I'm just telling you things that I read. I can tell you that I am, I would consider myself to be well-read on stuff like this. When you look at like somebody who's mapping the brain and figuring out the different parts of the brain that light up when certain thoughts or feelings or pressures or physical touch or something happens, it actually looks like most of the brain does get used. I, th- I think that the statement that you only use 10% of brain is not necessarily true. I think that it's more that people don't unlock the full potential of what their psyche could actually do. So I think the whole brain's in use. I just think that the brain can be wired in so many different ways that the brain is a more powerful computer than most people give it the appreciation for, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. It's the equivalent of having a call it a giant four-wheel drive truck that can trud through mud and snow and all this and that, but you only use it to drive back and forth from the grocery store. You're using the whole truck, but you're not really using it to its full potential. Yeah. And I only say that because I drive a big ass truck. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and and it's interesting too, as I think about like a lot of the work that they're doing with psychedelics research and like the connection between what's happening with psychedelics and neuroplasticity and, and how it enables your brain to unlock from some of the ruts that it's been in and, and then now enable like neurons to connect in new ways that weren't possible before. So right, like, right. Wild. Yeah, I, lo- I love that example of like the, the snow falling on the brain and then skiing down and creating new synapses and, and whatnot, right? Yeah. So you touched on the multiverse earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about, this is very random, but I was thinking about the multiverse the other day because I was also thinking about time travel. And And I was thinking that like, if this, if the multiverse is such a thing that like there's infinite combinations of realities, then wouldn't another way of time traveling be if you could just simply transport your consciousness to another alternate reality in that different time that's interesting right so if time's flowing generally in the same direction and i mean who's to say right we don't know what the physics would be like in a different universe but Mm -hmm. let's just assume for your example that time flows in the same direction of these other universes right if you died three years ago in a car accident in one of these other universes and time flowing in the same direction, then you all of a sudden transport yourself into somewhere where you don't exist anymore. Right. That's, that's kind of a wild thought. I get what you're saying, but I think for time traveling within the multiverse, then time would have to work differently under different, different laws of physics. But also in I always, you know, it's, it's very hard for me to like wrap my head around like Einstein's special theory of relativity and like how time and gravity distort one another. But like, would you not experience time differently, even just on a planet that had more gravity? Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think I can explain it the way Einstein could either, but at its most elementary, the, and a good example is light, right? So 
light can't escape a black hole, right? A black hole's gravitational pull is so immense that light just basically gets stuck there. The idea with relativity is the more immense the gravity, the slower time goes. So if you theoretically, a black hole is a time machine into the future. If you fall into a black hole, time essentially stops for you. And if you just say the act of falling in the black hole didn't actually, you know, stretch you out into infinity and kill you. If you could fall into a black hole and not be physically harmed and you could peer out into the universe, you would actually watch the entire life of the universe unfold in front of you within a matter of seconds because time would have essentially stopped for you, but it keeps going everywhere else relatively. Very fucking wild concept. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why does gravity affect time? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I just know that it's a crucial piece of, of, of physics and, and relativity in, in the equations. It's crazy, right? And it, it just, honestly, in a lot of ways, it excites me, right? I think about just the smartest people that, you know, quote unquote, smartest, like these quantum physicists and people at CERN that are, you know, trying to figure out the universe. And it's like, you think about space, right? Like, Space, we don't know shit about, right? Like, don't they say dark dark energy is like 74% of the universe, dark matter is 24% of the universe. And we don't know what either of those are. And then you think about time, and we don't even know, we know even less about that. We don't know anything well, about consciousness. I don't know. It's just, it's it's funny. Well, what, it's, what, st- what starts to get even more fucked up is, you know, you talk about what is dark matter in, in our three-dimensional universe, which makes up the vast majority of all mass in the visible universe, which is what we're starting to figure out. Okay. Well, that's fucked. But then you start to think about the fact that there's multiple dimensions, even just within our own universe, right? Like you think about dimensions, right? Like does a 4d creature look at us? Like we see a 2d drawing. I I don't know. That's kind of a wild concept, right? Like the universe just, we just don't know very much. And the more we find out, the, the less we know, which is a fascinating concept to me, but it's also super daunting. I mean, to try to sit here and grasp the vastness of space is, it's frankly, it's terrifying, right? Like you're talking about our star, a, a very average sun, a very average star in the Milky Way galaxy on one of the outskirts of one of the milky way spirals it's just one star out of something like 200 billion estimated stars in the milky way galaxy that's in a very average region of the universe in a universe with billions if not trillions of galaxies that have you know equal amounts or greater or less than stars it's like okay so how do you even comprehend that and then you start thinking about you know the quantity then you start thinking about then you take into account just distance like proxima centauri our closest neighbors like four light years away like there's nothing we can do today to send a probe to proxima it is so fucking far but it's our closest neighbor in our (laughs) cosmic backyard of this massive fucking backyard like it's just a wild concept and then what really starts to freak me out jordan is you think about the vastness of the universe, but the vastness of time is even scarier, yeah. right? The concept that 
to our knowledge, you know, the Big Bang happened, you know, 14 or so billion years ago. I mean, on a cosmic scale, like we, we just, we haven't been here for very long and we're not here for very long, which, what does that mean? Does that mean that I need to live my life? Like, oh, I'm worthless. I don't, my life doesn't mean anything. My, what I do doesn't affect anything. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's not fair either. I think it's good to recognize that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we are pretty tiny and I don't want to say insignificant, but I just can't think of a better word, but even in the vastness of time, it's like, what are we doing here? So again, I think it just gives a lot of a, a lot more validity to the fact that people rather than feel small should feel really special to be a part of this story, a part of this cosmos, a part of this unfolding to reflect back. And even in the hard times, you know, be thankful that you got to be a part of this journey and and see something special happen because I would argue that there's only X percent of planets that live within the Goldilocks zone that actually support life that actually derive life that actually derive intelligent life and to be, and I I would be certain that there are other civilizations out there that have figured this out just in the vastness of numbers and time again, but being able to be one of those creatures that, you know, we're made of stardust, we're made of the universe. And we are, I think Carl Sagan said it like we're, we are the universe studying itself, the universe through time and whatnot brought us here and, through evolution and whatnot, created a being made out of the universe that is now saying, what is the universe? I mean, that's a fucking wild thought. Yeah, it's such a wild thought. And it's cool, too, because like when you talk about it, it can make you feel insignificant. And I definitely feel that, too. Like when you start to think about, like you said, the vastness of space or the size of infinity or the yeah. concept of eternity. But then like for me, the concept of faith and like this, we're not it's not like we're once one insignificant piece of this thing much bigger than us, but much rather we're just a piece of this massive universe of this design, this divine, whatever you want to call it existence that we have. So it feels to me like it's, it can be both intimidating, but also empowering and exciting. Yeah. And and I think that's exactly right. And I think it's easy to be intimidated by it, but at the end of the day, you got to recognize that we're, we're just not here for that long. And where's the fun in, in being intimidated by it rather than that, just embrace the finiteness of what this is and do your best to understand it or don't and enjoy, enjoy the gift along the way. I mean, I'm not here for long, but super thankful for the opportunity to have had this existence. And what does it mean? I don't know. And, you know, you're exploring that through your, your consciousness and your meditation journey, Jordan. I explore that in in my own ways and and frankly, probably in similar ways. And, you know, will we find an answer? I don't know. Will we come to peace with it? I don't know, but it's, it's kind of fun to figure out. I think that uh, even just back to, you know, going into business, like being curious is, is fun. And I've, I've always enjoyed conversations like these or or learning about difficult concepts and whatnot because it's it's interesting and I think it's a better way to spend my time to be curious than to dwell on the fact that we're all gonna die <laughs> yeah. we're not here and we're not here for that long right so it's better to be a philosopher than than a you know the, upset at your situation yeah what's the uh, chicken little the sky is falling 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier the concept of Goldilocks zone. Could you explain what that is? Yeah. So think about our sun and the earth. The earth sits at a point between us and our star where it's not too hot. It's not too cold. Liquid water can exist. And the conditions for life are apparent. You got a a small rocky planet and you've got, you know, protection from larger gassier planets on the outside of the solar system that help prevent comets and asteroids from just fucking us up all the time. And anyways, that, that at its highest level is the Goldilocks zone. Now, any star system out there based on, you know, the mass of the star and how hot the star burns, its luminosity, et cetera, just through simple math, there's going to be an orbital point out there that is going to be that star's Goldilocks zone. So actually when scientists are out there hunting for planets, actually, even before I get into that, Jordan, are you familiar with how scientists find planets around other solar systems? No. So it's just important to point this out. So I'll keep it super high level, but when you are out there planet hunting, you basically use an extremely powerful telescope. There's many of these in the world and you track a star and you measure that star's luminosity. And let's just say it's a hundred and every 10 days, every two years or something, the luminosity dips by 0.001%. That suggests that there's a planet orbiting in front of that star. Hmm. And that's why it's luminosity is dipping. So through more intense calculations than, than that, scientists are able to deduce that the only reason the luminosity is dipping every 24 days is because there's a planet going around that star every 24 days. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And depending on how much the luminosity dips or, or the brightness of the star dips or whatever, they can also estimate the mass of that planet. And then the equipment and the mathematics is sophisticated enough to determine like, are these rocky planets? Are they gassy planets? Like mm-hmm. that's how we go out and we hunt for planets. So you have these supercomputers that are basically looking at stars, all these stars in our galactic neighborhood's brightness and figuring out like, are there dips and do those dips have recurring patterns? And if they do, then we can start to study that pattern to figure out and come to an agreement whether or not there's something orbiting that star. Depending on all that, whenever we find these stars, we then go out and then, you know, we, the the human race, will then go out and determine how far those planets are from their suns, whether or not those planets are orbiting in that Goldilocks zone. And then you can go out there and you can reasonably estimate how many planets on average will orbit their stars Goldilocks zone. So that's kind of what a Goldilocks zone is and and a little uh, 101 on how you hunt for planets. And then is that factored into that equation? I think it was a Carl Sagan thing you showed me in Hawaii. You know what I'm talking about? The Drake equation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Carl Sagan does a really good job of explaining the Drake equation, but yeah, that's what it was. And so the Drake equation for everyone's benefit, and I'm actually just going to Google it so I make sure I don't mess one of these up, is essentially a, a formula to figure out how many technically communicative civilizations may exist in the Milky Way galaxy. And it's basically a formula. And the formula says, 
you know, what is the rate of star formation within the Milky Way galaxy? So we know that today there's about 200 billion stars. What is the fraction of those stars that have planets? What we now think today, based on just exploring literally our galactic backyard, is that it's actually strange for a star not to form planets. We think that planet forming is very normal in solar system formation. Then, so, you know, you can assume that virtually all stars probably have planets. And then you then take that fraction and you say the number of planets that could support life within those within those solar systems. Mm-hmm. And so that would then say, okay, how many within all the solar systems that exist in the galaxy, how many have planets that are in the Goldilocks zone is basically what that's asking. And then within the Goldilocks zone, then you take a fraction and a guess of how many of those planets actually could support life. And then you take that fraction and then you say, what is the fraction of those planets worth where life actually develops with intelligence? And obviously time is vast. Intelligence is, that's a subjective, it's a subjective term. So then you ask, then, like, how, how can they even try to estimate that if we're like, teams? right? Because you could argue that velociraptors were intelligent. You right. could argue that dolphins, if we didn't exist, would be one of the most intelligent creatures on this planet. So it's a light, it technically is intelligence. So then you have to then do a fraction of intelligent civilizations that actually develop the means to communicate. So, like, radio communication, like we have and beyond. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to know what that number is today, you have to say, what is the mean length of time that a civilization can communicate? So let's take the human species, for example. At this point in time, we have been emitting radio waves into the galaxy since about the 19, late 1930s, basically around since World War II. So we're talking about a 14 and a half billion year old universe and an Earth that has been emitting radio waves for 80 years. So who knows? The world, you know, I don't want to get all depressed here, but we have the means to destroy ourselves over and over again. So the point of that last fraction is the mean length of time that that civilization can communicate. How long will we be around to communicate to the rest of the galaxy? You know, it's been 80 years, we'll be around for 81. We'll be around for 100, for a million. I don't know. But you certainly have to assume that just based on our own experience, which is the only thing we can use to make these assumptions, is you have to assume that a civilization will only be around for X amount of time. So to actually estimate out there, you talk about a fraction of 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 a fraction. And based on their thoughts of back when uh, Carl Sagan showed, showed you this video, I think that video was like in the 80s. They actually didn't think that there were that many planets out there. They thought that planet formation was more rare. Now, Mm. so they thought there was something like maybe 10 civilizations in the galaxy that existed at this given point in time. That number has grown significantly if Mm. you do, if you input the same numbers in the equation, but you just grow that virtually all stars probably have planets then you come up with a much higher number, but still something in like the hundreds or thousands of civilizations in the galaxy at this point in time. Wild. It's wild. And you think about some of those other input variables too, that I have to imagine have only increased over time. For example, 
can the planet support life? And you even think about like on earth, you know, there are all these places where we used to think life could never exist. Like, uh, you know, these like super deep, deep ice or like trenches uh, and yeah. And then they do find it. So it's like, you know, it's like that line in Jurassic line in Jurassic park life finds a way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. God, I, I'm actually, when we get done here, I'm going to just plug in the equation with the numbers that I know off the top of my head and I'll send you i uh, I'll send you my result. Yeah, please do. I'll, uh, I'll post it on the Instagram uh, for this episode too. Cool. So what got you so interested in space and astrophysics in the first place? <laughs> Dude, I, I wish I had like an answer that I could pinpoint to you for that. I don't, I think it's something that has happened naturally over my life through curiosity. I, I will say like when I was really young and it's, and it's something that still sticks with me even today. Like I've just always found the beauty of staring up into the night sky and looking at stars and the vastness of what's beyond to be just fascinating as a young child. And, and even like today I, I can sit outside and stare at the Milky way for hours and just be fascinated by it. And then I get in my head a lot and I have my own thoughts and, you know, similar to kind of what we've talking about right now, like thinking about like the vastness of space and what does it all mean and time and and what, what is time and all that. And and all that has gotten me to where I am today with, with regards to my fascination with with physics and and astrophysics and and astronomy specifically. I will say that uh, there's also just naturally Hollywood has always, I always thought that the future was cool when I was growing up and you know, seeing movies with like spaceships and aliens and, and also just being very curious about like, are we alone in the universe that that has certainly led to my curiosity. And, and while, while we haven't answered that question directly, I think I've answered the question of are we alone for myself with the indirect evidence of simply the vastness of space and time. So uh, getting to know, understanding all of that, I think has certainly led to a lot of my curiosity and then just understanding how strange things really are and how coincidental the universe is, how geometric the universe really is. And the the biggest objects in the known universe to, to the smallest objects following similar patterns and, and whatnot. It's just, uh, it was always fascinated me. So, you know, I, I, I took quite a few courses and as electives in college, like to deepen my thoughts and, and, and my research here with no like intentions of it being something that was going to like benefit me in my life in, in a financial way or anything like that, just more purely out of curiosity. I always like love listening to the latest podcasts or reading books by famous physicists, although admittedly it's hard for me to digest even like 10 or 20% of what I'm reading sometimes because these, these guys are just so brilliant to even just watching, you know, documentaries of expanding the mind and, and whatnot. It's just always been super fascinating. To me. It probably all stems down to maybe like a, a deep sense of not just wanting to understand, but wanting to understand purpose, wanting to figure out probably the question that, that sits in the back of everyone's mind. Like, is this it, you know, is there something else out there? Is there a greater power, a greater purpose, and I've always found that that religion and my 
kind of bring it full circle, I guess, my take on how crazy the universe is and how coincidental it is has really married itself together in, in my mind. And I'm, I'd say I'm still certainly figuring it out and I'll probably never figure it out. But the way I think of it is, you know, every time I learn something new, whether it's on a religious aspect or on a some new physics or, or some new you know, laws of physics, blah, 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 are discovered, it's like a new puzzle piece. And then my brain puts that together somehow in my head that makes it all make sense to me. Again, I think to some of the earlier points we were making, I think that, you know, while I never studied this or was interested in this for any other reason other than curiosity, I think that my curiosity in, in this field specifically has certainly just expanded my mind to be more open and receptive to any new ideas or anything like that, which I think has certainly just that, that natural curiosity and, and like, I guess, tenacity to go out there and try to learn and make sense of things has certainly helped me uh, again in, in, in business and, and, and in relationships with, with friends and, and family and, and, and loved ones, et cetera. Just, you know, always knowing that you, you really don't know shit and there's no possible way to know everything out there. And it's good to be a sponge and to learn from other folks and hear new perspectives and, hopefully be able to change your mind when your mind should be changed. And you mentioned one of those big questions that we all have is, is this it? So I'm curious, what do you think comes next? Well, I'll tell you what I want to hear, which is that there is something beyond. And I think that most people probably feel that way. Is it heaven with streets paved of gold? I don't know. That'd be really cool and and i'd welcome that is it lots of dogs (laughs) you know you get to see your old family members again and and it's kind of a continuation of this life yeah that's that's an interesting concept i don't know if i I fully buy into that more than i buy into you know like energy cannot be created neither destroyed kind of Mm -hmm. thing that that our energy is more transferred into something else the idea of consciousness is super interesting to me. So I I think like if I had to tell you what my ideal scenario would be, would be like some form of a, of a heaven, whatever that may be, not necessarily like the biblical heaven, but some form Mm -hmm. of transcending to the next phase of consciousness where you're a higher power. And maybe that's what other dimensions are. I don't know. Like people talk about trans-dimensional beings and shit like that and crazy experiences that they've had with, with creatures like that or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's kind of wild. It's just, uh, that's what I would, that would be ideal because it wouldn't all be just be over, but the also realistic side of me and also what I've learned from the science side, even though science can't explain everything yet. And I don't frankly think it ever really will be able to not at least maybe not within our lifetimes is that, you know, there's probably a good chance that life is random and consciousness is random. And when we die, it's, that's it. So I think it's just as plausible. And that doesn't mean that life isn't special. It doesn't mean that consciousness isn't special. I think it's in a way even more special if that ends up being the case, because Mm -hmm. you really have to take advantage of the time that you're here. I think regardless of what is beyond 
life and consciousness, it's just important to make sure that while you're here, you take full advantage in a, in a way that is giving, thankful, caring for others and try to make the best of your situation here whilst not making other people's situation worse to your benefit. As long as you're, you're giving back and doing the best you can, like, I don't think anyone doesn't really matter what's next. If there's something next, great. You're going to have good karma. If there's nothing next, great. You're going to be remembered for however long you are. And you got your, you got your shot at the universe. And you know, that was, you know, you were lucky to have that in the first place. You know, have you ever just sat sat and thought about like what it took for you to be born, Jordan? Like (laughs) all all the events that had to take place. I haven't, but that's pretty wild thought. I mean, I'll I'll try to do this really quickly, right? Like, based on known science, right? Like, the universe started out with the Big Bang, you know, fourteen and a half or so billion years ago, and it took millions of years for the first galaxies and stars and stuff to be formed. And those were super primitive galaxies, super primitive stars, basically burning only like the first element of the periodic table of elements. And what stars are is they're factories. A star fuses helium, it fuses hydrogen, and they're so heavy and they burn so hot that they eventually run out of fuel, they explode and they bust those new elements out into the galaxy, into the universe. And then those elements, those heavier elements that are created, turn into new stars one day. And then those new stars fuse those heavier elements into even heavier elements. And then all of a sudden, you have this periodic table of elements with like 120 something or whatever elements in it. It took billions of years of stars forming, fusing, exploding, dying, new stars forming, fusing, exploding, dying, just to get all the elements that exist today. And that randomness. And then in that randomness, every atom in your body was created in a star at some point in the life of the cosmos. And then all the randomness of just even the earth coming to be where it is, the fact that we have a moon where it is, like the fact that the dinosaurs got killed 65 million years ago, like the fact that there was an ice age 10,000 years ago, the fact that your grandfather met your grandmother and then your dad got lucky on the right night at the right time (laughs) you know like all of everything that you're made of started billions of years ago yeah in the heart of stars like it wasn't like the universe exploded into existence and all the elements existed it took billions of years of star formations and stars exploding you are made of supernova dust basically yeah yeah it's fucking wild right like wild well and what's crazy about that is you think Think about the idea of, is there a divine plan and whatever the word divine might, might be controversial for folks, but regardless, like, is there an order? Like there, there, ha- there is, of course there is, because there has to be right. Like we live in a complicated chaos theory type order. So they're, they're naturally, of course, is some semblance of order in the universe. Now what created that? Was it some conscious entity? Was it just complete randomness? Like, I don't know, but it, but it's that, pretty, that, and that's, that's the that's the hard part of the question right like we all because we live in this orderly society and because i can reflect back and and be like oh well yeah my grandpa met my grandma and my dad met my mom and you know i'm here like it feels like some divine order but 
again, when you think about the vastness of the universe and the vastness of time, it's also not far-fetched to think that everything's just fucking random. It's wild, man. It's, it's who knows what the answer is. Like, I don't know that I believe necessarily in destiny, but I think that the, where we exist and how we exist and how it came to be. And this is where I get my religiousness from Jordan. Mm -hmm. It it seems to me like there has to be some sort and you're right. Maybe the word divine is not right, but the divine works for me and, and my beliefs. Like it seems to me that there is some sort of divine intervention. Now, is it a grand plan? Like, is the plan perfectly laid out or is it more of an outline? It's yeah. probably more of an outline, you know, rather than like Tibby was supposed to be named Tibby and on two, two 22, he's going to have a podcast with Jordan. Like, I don't know <laughs> yeah. that things necessarily work that, you know, I don't think that the, you know, the grand design was like that, but you know, maybe an outline of the universe and see how, you know, see how things play out. But it, then it begs the question, what's the point? Like, why, why do this? Yeah. Why devise this grand plan it, it begs that then you get back to saying oh well shit maybe maybe it just is random but i don't know it's, it's tough what gives me comfort in these questions dude is that this has been these are age-old questions and yes as we learn more about physics and the nature of the universe we can start to maybe have more complicated responses to it but we are asking dude literally essentially the exact same questions that humans and philosophers have been asking for thousands and thousands of years we're just asking them maybe slightly differently yep i just pulled up one of my favorite quotes from forrest gump i don't know if we each have a destiny or if we are all just floating around accidental like on a breeze but i i think maybe it's both maybe both is happening at the same time yeah yeah i mean I uh, I love Forrest Gump, so I appreciate 110% that you, you brought that one up. But I mean, it's it's true. Like, are we, was there a destiny here or are we just some super evolved form of monkey hurling on a ball in some very, <laughs> around a very average star in a very average galaxy in a very average region of the universe randomly? Like what, what is it? I don't know. Wow, man. Well, this has been so much fun, Tibby. Yeah, dude. I, uh, I wasn't, you know, you and I talk about all sorts of shit all the time, <laughs> but a lot of our times spent talking about business and, and works. So I, you know, I wasn't totally sure where this uh, was going to go. Yeah. This was a, uh, this was fun. Yeah, man, definitely. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad we got to do this because you're right. Like it's funny for as many hours that we're talking to each other and have spent together over the last several years, just like, you know, we don't ever <laughs> take time to just, talk about crazy ideas about time and space. So I'm, I'm super <laughs> excited to gotten to do this with you. Well, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure we'll be doing this sometime soon around my, uh, my kitchen table. And I look forward to it again. Absolutely brother. All right, man. Well, good chatting with you. And I look forward to listening to my voice on the podcast. That's gonna be really <laughs> but uh, awesome, I'll bro. send it around. <laughs> All, All right. right take cool. care, man. I love you, man. Take care. See ya. Thanks everyone for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
When Tibby was describing his ideal transition after death, he said it would involve transcending to the next phase of consciousness. Those words were super powerful. They're also synchronistic for me. Just the day before, I'd been thinking about the principle taught by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi that enlightenment is our birthright. Now, I spent most of the first 30 years of my life subscribing to the reductionist idea that life and consciousness are totally random and that there's likely nothing for me after death. Then, as I discovered spirituality, some of the most meaningful ideas for me came from Aldous Huxley's essay, The Perennial Philosophy. His essay looked at the commonalities in writings of saints and prophets across all religions, and uh, he found common themes, including that number one, there is an infinite, changeless reality beneath the world of change. Number two, this same reality lies at the core of every human personality. And number three, this, the purpose of life is to rediscover this reality experientially. That is, to realize God while here on earth. Then we get to Maharishi and the idea of enlightenment as our birthright. Maharishi taught that the reality of transcendence and practices for transcending can be found at the inception of every religious tradition, but they often became lost or obscured. Yet human beings are designed for enlightenment. It is everyone's birthright. And as I've experimented with holotropic states of consciousness and seen what I believe to be our glimpses into this potentiality, this idea has resonated with me more and more. Could enlightenment truly be the birthright of every human being? Not something just relegated to the Siddhartha Gautamas and the Jesus Christ of the world, but available to each and every one of us? And if so, is the process of transcending to the next phase of consciousness something that only happens after our death? Or can we start to experience that transcendence today, now, while here on earth? <laughs>